You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 118. This week, I would like to thank Dennis, Peter, and Bradley for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special Patreon-only episodes, like the one this week, where we begin our deep dive into military doctrine during the war, first by looking at the French. They also, of course, unlock the special benefit of feeling awesome, because they're helping make all of this happen. If you would like to support the podcast in other ways, you can do so by leaving an iTunes review, sharing our posts on Facebook or Twitter, or just finding somebody out there and telling them about the show. This past weekend was Memorial Day weekend here in the United States, and I was asked to speak at a local Memorial Day commemoration event. I made a post about it on the website, History of the Great War, and I included a recording of the speech that I gave at the event. It was a great honor to be involved and to hopefully make Americans a bit more knowledgeable about the war, so you can check that out on the website. This episode, however, we will be looking at another attack on the Asanzo, when the Italians launch what will become known as the Eighth Battle. This time the Austrians would once again be pushed further right up to the breaking point. However, they would once again barely manage to hold the line against the Italian attacks. The second half of this episode will then focus on a discussion of morale and discipline in the Italian army during the war. For this topic, we will take a look at the subject from when Italy entered the war until the end of the war, and then talk about how the actions of Cadorna and the Italian army were looked on by the post-war Italian government. The subject of morale is a topic that we will be talking a lot about here for the next year and a half or so, with the French mutinies and the Russia situation, and then the race to the end of the war, with the German and Austrian armies suffering an almost complete morale collapse in late 1918. But the Italian army provides a bit of an isolated story, so we will focus on that today. Before we jump into the plans for the Eighth Battle, here's a quote from John MacDonald, 
from his book Caporetto and the Asanzo Campaign, which is something I always try and keep in mind during these discussions about the Asanzo battles, but perhaps I don't do as good of a job as I could when it comes to presenting it in the episodes, since the breaking up of the action into battles is such an easy way to organize the information. Quote, Though history has defined the campaign as a series of separate battles or offensives, from the point of view of the soldiers, the war was one long struggle that continued on a daily basis. High explosive shells caused a daily hail of rock splinters. Aircraft often bombed or strafed the trenches, and snipers on the high ground lay in wait for the slightest movement. The unrelenting stress was seriously affecting the morale of the frontline troops on both sides. In the Italian forces, there was growing evidence that the Malays ran deeper, but Cadorna gave his soldiers little time to ponder on their fate and kept them busy consolidating their gains, digging new trenches, and preparing new supply dumps. To his way of thinking, the period after the Seventh Battle was just a pause to integrate reinforcements, replenish supplies, and increase the number of troops and guns that he could bring to bear on a dispirited enemy. End quote. For what would be known to history as the Eighth Battle, Cadorna planned a two-pronged attack. The main effort would be on the northern Carso, with supporting attacks both to the south on the southern end of the Carso and to the north, just to the south of the newly captured Gorizia. In practice, it would end up looking a lot like the Seventh Battle when it came to execution and results. On the Austrian side, Borivik was once again just frantically repairing all of his defensives after the previous battle. He not only needed to repair the front-line defenses, but also he was trying to create a second line of defenses as well. This would be positioned to the east of the Carso and would be used in case of the first line became lost to the Italians. Of course, he also was constantly asking for more troops, and for once Conrad was actually on his side and was trying to get more troops to send to the Asanzo. However, it was the Germans that were now blocking this movement. The only way to produce more Austrian units was to send them from the Russian front to the Italian front, but this required German permission at this point in the war, since they had taken over control of most of the Western Russian front following the disaster that was the Brusilov Offensive earlier in the year. Hindenburg and Ludendorff were never keen on giving Conrad more troops to send to the Italian front, since they did not have any real control of what would happen to them once they arrived, and so all that would be given to Borivik in this case was two divisions. This helped him, and I'm sure he was glad that they arrived, but such a small number meant that he would still be outnumbered almost three to one on the Carso when the attack fell upon him. The artillery fire began on September 30th, and would last for over a week. It would not be completely constant during that time, much to the chagrin of the Italians, because there were some breaks due to bad weather. Even with these breaks, the concentration of artillery on such a short front was devastating. This artillery caused 4,000 Austrian casualties before the attack even began. All of this fire came to a conclusion on October 9th. At this point, every gun fired at maximum speed for most of the day, and then this was followed by probing attacks in the afternoon to try and find weak points. Then on the next day, the same thing happened, with a massive final barrage before the infantry began to go forward. This attack had the benefit of taking place on a very foggy morning, which cloaked the Italians as they moved up to the Austrian trenches. The defenders really just did not have much of a chance. To the south of Gorizia, the day's defenders were pushed back almost a mile to the next set of defenses. On the northern and central Carso, the results were much the same. It was only on the southern Carso that the Austrian lines held mostly firm. 
On the 11th, further Italian attacks captured yet more territory, mostly on the northern end of the offensive near Gorizia. It was around this point that the attack began to lose steam. Cadorna first widened the area of the attack, diluting some of his artillery strength. Then the fog continued, which after the initial attacks had began, shifted from being an Italian advantage to an Austrian advantage, due to its ability to cloak the counterattacks that the Austrians wanted to launch. Over the next day, the counterattacks and the Italian attacks to counter those counterattacks were launched in large numbers along the front, but these were generally small actions and the main result was that they prevented a larger Italian breakthrough. However, they were also extremely costly in terms of men for both sides. On October the 12th, instead of continuing the attack, something that the Austrians feared that he would do, Cadorna instead called it off. The casualties for the battle numbered 60,000 for the Italians and 38,000 for the Austrians. However, as had been the case almost every time the Austrians had been attacked by the Italians, they had lost a little ground but not very much. But also, of course, just like always, stopping the attacks had taken most of Borivik's reserves, so now he needed even more troops so that he could feed them into what was really the Asanzo meat grinder. Even though it was by this point the middle of October, and winter was swiftly closing in, the 8th battle would not be the last on the Asanzo for 1916, and unfortunately for the men, all they could do was shelter in their defenses, many of which were damaged in the fighting, and try to stay warm in the Alpine winter, which was quickly descending upon them. We will cover the ninth battle, and the final one of 1916, next episode. We now shift over to our discussion about morale and discipline in the Italian army. And because of this, I need everybody to think all the way back to 1915, when Italy entered the war. During the year of fighting, the Italians would suffer 400,000 casualties, of which 66,000 would be killed. This was, in short, a very rough year for the Italian army. However, I think that sometimes numbers that large can cause us to lose our sense of context. So let's break it down even further by looking at just one brigade, the Polenta Brigade, something that they were called because their colors were yellow. When the war started, this unit had a strength of 130 officers and 6,000 men. In May 1915, it became involved in the fighting on the Asanzo. Over the next seven months, it would man the front from June and July, and then spend three punishing months on the hills around Podgora. These would be the areas that would see so much fighting in 1915, as the Italians attempted to take Gorizia. During these seven months, they would suffer casualties amounting to 154 officers and 4,276 men. This represents well over 100% loss of officers at 154 to 130, and it's also a bit over two-thirds of the enlisted men. Not all of these casualties were just during battles, and many of them were just general wastage casualties due to the difficulty of manning the Italian front in 1915. Most of the Italian positions were exposed to Austrian fire, since they were at generally a lower elevation. The Austrians, much like the Germans on the Western Front, had the opportunity of choosing where they fought, which meant that they almost always were in better positions than the Italians. To add to this difficulty was how neglected the quality of life at the front was among Italian officers. Here is Mark Thompson from his book The White War to discuss why life was so horrible at the front, even when the Austrians were not shooting at them. Quote, Sweat, dust, mud, rain, and sun turned the men's woolen uniforms into something like parchment. 
Their boots were often made of cardboard uppers and wooden soles, and lacking better remedies, the men rubbed tallow into their cracked feet. Helmets were often in very short supply. The wooden water bottles were unhygienic. The tents, when they had them, leaked. The wire cutters were almost useless and unusable under fire. Ration parties were often delayed by enemy fire, and the only hot meal was in the morning, and it was so poor that soldiers often rejected most of it. The pervasive stench, anyway, made eating almost impossible. The effects of such poor nutrition were evident after three or four days in the trenches, and some units sent out raiding parties for food and clothing in trenches that the enemy had abandoned. The soldiers slept on straw pallets, but there were never enough to go around. And even in the rear, before proper huts were built, the men lived in tents that quickly became waterlogged and filthy. Abysmal medical care led to a good number of avoidable deaths due to inhuman treatment, and wounded men were routinely shipped on 20 to 30 kilometer ambulance runs on vile roads and then kept waiting for hours outside the hospital, end quote. I bring up the casualty rates and the quality of life because they are critical to understanding why Italian morale was at times so poor, and also why the Italian leadership felt that it had to be so harsh when it came to discipline. So if you just want to log that information away as we move forward talking about discipline, I think it makes things make a little more sense. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The first true mutiny would occur in December 1915, and it would happen in the Ferreira Brigade. The situation for this unit was not that much different than what we have discussed with the Polenta Brigade. They had been in the line for a good portion of the year, and they had lost many of their men. By the time that they were brought off the line, they only had 700 combat effective men left, and of those 200 were given leave to rest and recuperate, but the rest were due to be sent back to the front. When the soldiers who were destined for the front found out about the plan, they mutinied, and shots were fired by the soldiers. 
Order was eventually restored and a court-martial set up to try those involved. Two soldiers would be shot just a few days later as punishment for the mutiny. The fact that these troops mutinied is somewhat extraordinary, since their complaints and their treatment was not so different than what other units were experiencing. They wanted more leave, especially leave that allowed them to go home, and they wanted better conditions at the front with better food and clothes. That these very same complaints would be present for almost the entire war, and there were so few mutinies or other issues, is a testament to the Italian disciplinary methods, so let's jump into what those were. Right from the start of the war, discipline was high on the list of priorities for the Italian army leadership. In 1914, the army was still using the Italian Penal Code of 1859 to guide its actions. This involved a lot of military tribunals and influence from higher commanders. The disciplinary actions were then carried out by the Carabinieri, or military police, and the precise scope of these punishments can best be described as draconian. Throughout the war, the Italian military leaders constantly fell back on a more traditional preference for extreme discipline, rather than any more progressive ways to manage morale. This resulted in even simple complaints about officers or rations, carrying a result of six months to a year in prison if they filtered up the chain of command high enough. And this was in many ways on the lenient end of the spectrum. One Italian corps commander believed that the massacre of the infantry was a necessary holocaust and that it was therapeutic. It strengthened the army in the process. And obviously this made him and officers like him less amenable to men who who tired of seeing such slaughter up close. The constant need for military tribunals meant that early in the war, a permanent court-martial was set up to try all enlisted men, and this court was under the influence of Cadorna, who, as the supreme military leader of Italy, had a lot of power when it came to shaping Italian disciplinary procedures. Cadorna, to put it bluntly, believed that discipline was the core of the army, and that it should be enforced with as much violence as was necessary to ensure compliance. Early in the war, he would issue a memorandum that would say, quote, Every soldier must be convinced that his superior officer has the sacred duty to shoot all cowards and recalcitrants immediately, end quote. He believed that not only was discipline necessary, but it was also the only way to keep morale high, and he placed its importance over that of training and tactical acumen when it came to making the army successful. He also believed that it was critical that officers in the field felt empowered to execute summary sentences when it was necessary, and that if they were too weak or tolerant to carry out those sentences, they should be removed. This incentivized officers to be as harsh and cruel as possible, otherwise they might be removed and mothballed and disgraced. Cadorna would also use his position to criticize the military tribunals if they were too lenient. After the fifth battle of Asanzo, he openly criticized these tribunals and told them to ratchet up their punishments. During the battle of the Trentino, Cadorna would write to one of his commanders directly as a way of telling him how he thought he should have handled the morale crisis that many Italian units were having at the time. Quote, Your Excellency should take the most energetic and severe measures. If necessary, shoot at once and without trial those guilty of such enormous scandals, no matter what their rank. What this would result in is five known cases of killing by lottery, two of which were specifically decimation, which followed almost immediately after this letter was sent. It resulted in a lieutenant, three sergeants, and eight men being selected by lot from a company which had broken under unexpected attack. They were all shot. 
While this was happening at the front, for most of 1915, very little information about these practices was filtering back to the home front. Right from the very start, every letter from the front was heavily censored by the military, and this, presented real, this prevented realistic portrayals of what was happening from reaching the families of those from the trenches. However, nearing the end of 1915, a large group of men were sent back home on leave for two weeks, and it was at that point that information began to filter out to a wider public. This produced a marked downturn in support from the war of, from those back home. And now the situation on the home front was already divided, mostly along class lines, but with information about how the men were being treated at the front, these divides became worse. Cadorna and the military were prepared for this, though, and they already had in place a network of agents to keep tabs not just on the civilians of Italy, but also on the civilian government. They were assisted in this by some members of the civilian government in Rome, and they would use this support in Rome to push through a measure that criminalized defeatism, which would be defined as an extremely broad term that would end up being used to prosecute anybody doing really anything that the military did not approve of. The only people who were in a position to raise concerns about these types of changes were those in Parliament who did not agree with them, but they found their voices muffled by those who supported the military and their efforts to maintain control over the country. Even though Cadorna took a very hard line on discipline, the situation at the front did begin to improve for the men in early 1916. After the winter of 1916, the soldiers were finally finding that a reasonable number of cold-weather clothing, like overboots, heavy leather boots, and greatcoats, were made available to them. The lack of these had been punishing for those in the front lines during the long and cold alpine winter, and it was not helped by the serious shortage of woolen socks. While these new clothing options were appreciated, the greatest change was made in the length of tours of the front line. In 1915, troops had spent most of their entire time at the front, in the front line trenches or immediately behind them. But for 1916, there were changes. Frontline tours were shortened to just 15 days, and then they were rotated out in stages, first to the second line and then to the reserves. And while all of these changes made the situation at the front bearable for the men, it would not prevent other morale issues from popping up as the war continued. 1917 would be a particularly bad year for Italian morale and military obedience from the troops. During the summer, there were many instances of troops going to and from the front, getting in fights with the carabinieri, and sometimes even shooting at them. This eventually led to the men's rifles being taken away before, before they were sent on leave, but that just resulted in them throwing rocks and bottles instead. The number of deserters would triple between April and August 1917, which was never a good sign for any army, and then of course Caporetto would happen, which would throw the entire army into disarray a phenomenon which we will discuss here in just a few episodes, and I'm going to hold off on that because it plays such a critical role in the story of the battle. Overall, of the roughly 5.2 million Italians mobilized in the armed forces, 870 faced some form of charges for military crimes, the largest of which was desertion. Of these, some 4,000 were condemned to death, and then about 750 of these death sentences were carried out. This is a relatively small number when looking at the totals, but they only tell part of the story. These are just the official numbers that were documented, and does not account for the summary executions in the field performed by officers and men against their comrades. In January 1916, the old Roman practice of decimation was introduced into the Italian army as a way with dealing with units who had, were seen as having failed. 
This fact, when combined with the orders from Cadorna for officers to shoot deserters at the front, combined to probably kill many more than the 750 men officially executed for their crimes. I did not find an exact count for these informal executions, and it's unlikely that we will ever know their full extent, since often those killed for their actions at the front were not separated from those killed in action by the enemy. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode, as we cover the Ninth Battle of the Isonzo, and we look at what was happening in the winter of 1916 and 1917, both at the front and in Rome and Vienna.